The Bible says that a slave and a child are treated exactly the same, even though the child is master of all. And I used to look at that scripture and go, what, what does that mean? Like, why is a child and a slave the same? And, and, why, and why is it okay to have a slave? Well, it's not. It's not okay to have a slave, nor is it okay to be a slave. When God brought the children out of Egypt, he had to get slavery out of them. They still had a slave mentality. They would rather go back and be a slave just so they could get leeks and garlic and have a place of shelter. Well, God never intended for us to be a slave. He doesn't want to be a master over us. Um, so what does it mean a child and a slave is the same? Both of them are told, do this, don't do that. You can go here, but you can't go there. Eat this, don't eat that. So what does that mean? They both have law. They both have to live under obedience. You have to obey. But Jesus comes along and says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And he's looking for priests and kings to rule and reign over what? The kingdom. Well, people think the kingdom of God is outside of us. Like, um, I'm going to rule over the, the area of education, and I'm going to rule over the area of politics, and I'm going to rule over the area of media, and I'm going to rule over all these areas. And that is true. We, God is looking for people to do that, but we're not going to find the kingdom of God outside of us by attempting to rule. You're going to find the kingdom of God inside of you. And when the kingdom of God inside of you is, is uh, manifesting, because you now know who you are in Christ, you know your identity, um, then the, the result is you rule and reign. Why? Because I'm looking for kings and priests to rule and reign my kingdom. So does he say, go prepare to rule the kingdom? No, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added. What are all these other things? All. All means all. So all the things that we, we as humans aspire to do or to have or to be manifest as a result of when you find the kingdom of God in you. And then that kingdom of God in you rests in his righteousness, not becomes righteous because you're doing good. No, I don't become righteous out of what I do. I'm righteous because of believing the impossible. The same thing Abraham did, that it was accounted unto him for righteousness, is the same way I become righteous. When I believe the impossible, how do I know that? Jesus told the Sadducees and Pharisees that they were blind. What? We're not blind. We're sons and daughters of Abraham. He said, you are of your father the devil, who killed the prophets before you. And the fact that you say you're not like them is evidence that you are. See, whatever we judge and say, I'm not like, that's the evidence that you are. The fact that it came out your mouth. Where did that come from? Peter, he told him the same thing. He said to Peter, he said, because you're sitting here saying that you wouldn't deny me. You've said it three times. So now you're going to go deny me three times before the cock crows. Now, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. I'm not quoting it identical. But I'm giving you the understanding of what that scripture was teaching us. It's teaching us that when you judge yourself more highly of another person, that's evidence that you already are walking in it. That seed's already in you. And even if you haven't manifested it yet, you're about to. 
And there's also a hidden allegory in the fact that God told Peter, you're going to deny me three times and then the cock will crow. I'll interject that and we'll go back to what we were talking about. Help me stay on track with it. But in order, um, when, when Peter denied him three times and the cock crowed, three times means three measures of time. And cock crows mean that the, the, um, the revelation of mankind would be revealed. And when the revelation of mankind is revealed, people will no longer deny God. The rock will no longer deny God, meaning our hearts. Our hearts, after three measures of time, will wake up and will no longer deny Christ in us, the hope of glory. We'll, we'll begin to walk in our identity. And so, until then, our identity is either a child or a slave. But after three measures of time, we'll wake up and we'll see that we are his child, but we're now grown and mature. We've we've no longer are on the milk of the word and we've stepped into the ability to eat the meat of the word. How does that happen? By having your senses exercised. What senses? My sight, smell, taste, touch, and hearing? No, a slave can have that. The sight, smell, taste, touch, and hearing of your heart, of the inside kingdom, not your outside body. So a slave and a child, what happens? We as Christians have attempted to serve God like a slave or a prostitute. That's why he told Hosea, go and get your wife from here. And that's why he calls us an adulterous generation. Because we haven't been acting as children of Abraham. We've been slaves trying to serve God through obedience because we, we perceive ourselves to be a child. Therefore, we are a child. But a child and a slave is treated the same. So people live their lives out of being obedient and they never grow up. They never mature to become a bride. And they're calling themselves a bride, but they're not intimate. How do I know that? If you can't be intimate with your spouse, then you're not intimate with God. If you can't be intimate with the one you can see, how are you going to be intimate with the one that you can't see? And intimacy does not mean intercourse physically. Intercourse means enter on the inside and have voices in harmony. What is a chorus? Voices in harmony. So to enter chorus is to enter into voices in harmony, which is two hearts become one. And when two hearts become one, then it naturally manifests in the physical. And they can become lovers as husband and wife. Now, the problem is, People try to get intimacy through sex and it don't work because they got it backwards. And so then because they have it backwards, their heart begins to harden. They wax cold and they start looking for answers. And they look for answers in, well, I must be doing something wrong. Or maybe I've lost my mind. Or maybe I'm crazy. Or maybe my hormones are out of balance. Or, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just not faithful enough. And we start grasping at all these straws so that we on the inside could feel better, but we're washing the outside of the cup. We're becoming more of a slave. We're putting more rules on each other. We're giving each other more steps. I used to have people ask me, can you give me some steps for my marriage? Just, just give me three things I could do. I said, what, the 10 you have is not working for you? That irritates me. Why does it irritate me? Because you're asking me to give you something 
and add to God's word when God already told you you can't keep the ten he gave you. The reason he gave us those ten was because the men and the women in the wilderness refused relationship. And God's, God's heart was broken. He grieved for 40 years, the Word of God says. And if you go look, when Moses came to the people and said, God wants you to hear him, and he'll, he'll be your deliverer forever. Like he's, 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 in, he's, he's beckoning them for relationship. And they say, no, no, Moses, we've seen God. We've heard God. We've, we heard the thunder and the smoke and the, and the fire like seraphim. We don't want to talk to God. You go talk to God. You know, they were, they were afraid. They didn't, they didn't want intimacy. Well, anybody whose heart's hard and have been wounded and have a slave mentality, they're not going to want intimacy. They're going to want rules. It's like they look, they're looking at God like they looked at Pharaoh. Go tell us how many bricks to make. Go tell us what you want us to do. And we'll stomp out our bricks and we'll do what you want. And we'll, by the work of our hands, we'll please you and then you'll, you'll bless us. That's a trade mentality. That's a whore mentality. It's a slave mentality. And so God tells Moses, no, no, go tell the people I delivered them. I'm their deliverer. And I'll deliver them again. I'll, I want relationship. I want to talk to them. I want to know them. I want them to know me. I want them to hear who I am. And Moses goes back and tells the people, and the people say, no, nope, we want, just tell us what to do. Now, think about that, that request how pious that request is. That, pi that pious request underlining unspoken word is, no, we can do whatever God says. We are able to do it. Just tell us what to do and we're able. No, Jesus said, you can't do anything without me. But they had the perception they were able. What if God would have said, go make a banana tree? They couldn't have done it. So God gives them what they believe they can do. They believe they can have no other God before him. They, they believe they won't make any carved image. They believe they can honor their mother and father. They believe they cannot lie. They believe they cannot steal. They believe they won't commit adultery. They believe that they can be good. When Jesus said, don't call me good. There is none good but my father. And I only do what I see my father do and, and say what I hear my father say, which is what the invitation was back in the wilderness. So... When the second time Moses tells God what the people said, God's response is, don't touch the mountain. Don't even come near it, lest you die. What do you see, a wasp or something? You're good. He ain't going to bite us. So, um, so they, they think they can do this, and God's so sad. He's like and angry, and God's anger is destructive. So he's telling them don't come don't touch the mountain, don't come near it, at least you die because the frequency of God's anger will destroy you. And God doesn't want them destroyed. So he keeps them at bay in his brokenness. It's not that God's wanting to punish them or wants to destroy them. No. He understands that kind of fire is consuming and it will wound them. So he for their own protection and because he's in a place of anger he says, don't come near. You know, the same thing happened with me and my husband. When my husband and I got married, he was a very angry person. And when he got angry, I knew instinctively, just leave him alone. Now, later on, I found out in Scripture that an angry man isolates. And instinctively, that man knows he needs to be alone because he can't control his own anger 
even if he tries. Why? Because love is stronger than death and jealousy is cruel, the Bible says. And so somehow instinctively we know that when we're angry, it's best to just pull away and, and go calm down. So when I saw my husband in his anger when we first got married, um, I knew out of wisdom and instinctively to not go around him and say, tell me what's wrong, tell me what's wrong. Well, a lot of women don't have that wisdom. Wake up, women. If you're around a person who's angry, or children, if you're listening to this, and you are around, the best thing to do is leave somebody alone when they're angry. And if you don't leave them alone when they're angry, you're actually going to possibly um, put yourself in harm's way. And so to enable to not put yourself in harm's way, the best thing to do is to just get away from it. And that doesn't mean you're running. It means you're wise. Now, I didn't run from my husband. I still had to stand up to him. I had to confront him. No different than you would a bully, right? I remember as a kid, I got bullied a lot. I was little. I was a tattletale. I was teacher's pet. I was mama's spoiled brat, all those things, which no wonder I got bullied. But my point is that I learned to stand up to a bully. And when I got married to Michael, I could stand up to him. Now, I didn't get in his face, and I didn't push him, and I didn't touch him when he was angry. But I did say, you will not speak to me that way. You'll come home to an empty house. Now, a codependent person has a slave mentality. And for a slave mentality to stand up to an angry person, um, I didn't realize it, but I was already coming out of codependency. I had already learned to have my voice. Why did I have my voice at such a young age? Because I got tired of being picked at. I got tired of being bullied. And I learned that even though I was mama's pet, and even though my daddy was there for me, I, I deemed as a child, they don't protect me. They don't stand up for me. Well, when you have five kids, and they're all fighting over things like socks and underwear, you know what, it's, you just let them fight it out. It wasn't that my mom and dad didn't care about me. But when you're little, you don't know that. When you're little, you don't know that mama's not protecting you. It feels like it. Why? Because your big sister's pulling your hair and not getting in trouble. Well, guess what? Big sisters pull little sister's hair. That's just the way it is. It's, you know, it's kids will be kids. But I learned to have my voice. I'll give you an example of how I had my voice as a child and how that a lot of people surrender their voice and when they get in an abusive situation, they don't know how to stand up for themselves. I remember one day, um, I was about five years old, and I was popping firecrackers. And back in the day, when you'd pop firecrackers and you're little, you would stick it in the ground somewhere, or in a Coke can, or whatever, and you would light it with a little stick called a punk, and you would run. And then you'd watch it pop. Or you, you know, and it was fun to do that. So you popped one firecracker at a time, and you strategically got as much fun out of that one little pack or two little packs, and the packs cost like a nickel. They were black cat firecrackers, you know. And we didn't have a lot of money growing up, and we had a lot of kids. My daddy was a carpenter, and so um, we didn't get a lot of luxury money. So we'd save up our coins, and we'd go sell return Coke bottles to get a nickel or a dime or whatever. So I had popped all my firecrackers, and I went to my mom, and I said, Mom, I, I want some more firecrackers. Well, give me some money. Hold my hand out. And my mom, with her cool self, sitting in her chair with her, her, her legs crossed and a and a Virginia Slim cigarette between her fingers, takes a puff on her cigarette, <sighs> blows that cigarette smoke out, 
and says, no, honey, that's burning money. And I'm watching her. And now I'm five. I'm a little bitty thing. And I say, Mama, well, you're smoking a cigarette. Isn't that burning money? And she looks at me like, girl, you fix it and get your butt whipped, you know? But she doesn't. She, I'm a good kid. I'm her, I'm the obedient one, so I don't get a spike, and I don't even get fussed at. She says, you better get out of here and go play and keep smoking her cigarette. Well, as a kid, I'm dumbfounded because this makes no sense to me. How can you tell me I can't burn money while you're burning money? And, and so my brain begins to ping pong, try to figure things out. Well, I decide I'll make my own money. So I would do things in the neighborhood. I'd go clean somebody's yard. I'm five. I'd go pick, can I have your bottles, Mama Delta? You know, like Coca-Cola bottles and um, the, what was it? We had back then red pop and grape and orange. Brock's, I think it was called or something. Anyway, yeah. So I would do those kinds of things. And then another time when I found my voice as a child, um, again, I was a tattletale. I was the one that would get my big sisters in trouble. So I, I paid the price for that. But they weren't bad people. They just were being kids, and I was a tattletale. And so I would get my butt beat. I would get in trouble. I would get beat up by my sisters. And they didn't, like, bloody my nose or anything. They just would push me around, you know, that kind of thing. And rightfully so. But if they wouldn't stop, and Mama wouldn't stop them, or Daddy wouldn't stop them, I'd bite them. And so one day I got in trouble for biting my sister, and I get sent to my daddy, and I barely can stand up and look over the edge of the chair, and my daddy barely pops me in the face. I mean, it was almost affectionate. It was so light, but my daddy never spanked me. So that was like, oh, I'm really in trouble. I just got my face, you know, touched. And he, he, he looked at me very sternly, and he said, Miha, you can't bite your sisters. If you bite your sisters, I'm going to have to spank you. Now, don't bite your sister because I don't want to spank you. Daddy don't want to spank you. So you, you don't bite your sisters. And I'm thinking, my little wheels are turning, and I thought to myself, well, I'd much rather have a spanking than get beat up. So I told my daddy. I stood up tall and poked my chest out and looked him in the eye, and I said, Daddy, nobody stops them from beating me up, and so I'm going to bite my sisters if they beat me up, and I'll take my spanking. Thank you. He looked at me like, Where'd that come from? And he says, go play me, huh? So I run off. And one of my sisters goes, ha ha, you can't bite me, you can't bite me, blah, 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 you know, taunting me again. And I said, go ahead and beat me up and see. So she starts messing with me. Well, I, we're, on the, we're rolling around on the bed, we're fighting. And I pull her shirt up, or gown, whatever it was, and I get, and I latch onto her belly. And I'm biting a tender part right above her belly button. And I'm thinking in my brain, should I bite a chunk out or that would be too much? Maybe I'll just bite till I taste blood and I'll warn her that I'll bite a chunk out. I, I can remember this like it was yesterday. And so I thought, no, if I bite a chunk, that'll taste really bad and I'll be in real bad trouble. So I'll only taste blood. So I bite enough till I break the skin intentionally, taste her blood and let go. And I said, now. I bit blood that time. Next time I'll bite a chunk out. Well, she runs and tells on me, and rightfully so. But I don't get a whipping. My daddy don't spank me. My mama don't spank me. I don't get in trouble. And she, guess what? I got, they didn't beat, she didn't beat me up anymore. Very seldom did we fight after that. She didn't like me a whole lot. And I admired her. Like, I wanted their approval so bad 
that I began to be their slave. I began to do anything and everything to get them to like me because now she's not going to beat me up because she knows I'm a biter and I'm not going to get in trouble for it. Um, but this particular sister, one of the things I admired about her as a child and still do as an adult is her compassion was really big. And one year we all got baby dolls for Christmas and we all got the same kind, the, the three youngest of, of the time. And it was called a Timey Tail doll. And so she had a watch on and you would change the, the dial on the watch and you'd pull her string. And when you did, it would tell you what time it was and what, what you would do at that time. Like, um, you know, two o'clock, time for tea. Or 12 o'clock, time for lunch or whatever. Well, mine, when you pulled the string, would go and it wouldn't say anything. My sister right next to me, her doll worked when you pulled the string, but the watch band was broken. And then my other sister's doll worked perfect. And so I was sad and crying and it was Christmas and I couldn't be comforted and I'm, why does Santa not love me? And why does Santa not like me? And why did Santa give me the broken doll and all this stuff? And I don't know if my mother had anything to do with it or not, but my sister that was filled with compassion and still is, she traded me dolls and gave me her doll with the broken watch, but still talked. And I love that tiny tale. And I loved her. This is the same sister I bit. And all of a sudden something, I mean, I, I wanted to be like her and never could measure up. She was considered the most beautiful in school when I was in school. Um, she had nicknames that, that accoladed her beauty. Um, she was smart, she was popular, she was really good at basketball, she was fast and could run fast, she had the cutest little shape, and I just so desperately wanted her approval. Um, and I wanted the approval of all of my sisters, but when you, when you believe you don't have approval, um, you constantly are trying to get it, and so you learn as a, as a little kid that something is missing in me and I don't get approval because I'm in lack. So that begins to set a foundation for your whole life. And you begin looking for approval outside of yourself. So in order to get that approval, I became a slave. I would wash their clothes. I would cook their food. I would rub their back. I would rub their feet. I would do whatever I could get. And this, would, this wasn't like obvious. I just would always try to think of ways. And then when they started dating, I would cook for them and their boyfriend. I can remember making steaks for one of my sisters and her boyfriend. And I would go to the, run to the store for them or anything they wanted. And I got a lot of approval that way. And then um, that carried on into my life. And I did that for other people, for teachers, for my coach, for my bosses, for my husband when I got married, who was verbally abusive. So if you look at what's going on in the wilderness, they had a slave mentality. They had been serving Pharaoh and they were stomping bricks out of mud and hay. Well, if you look up what it means to stomp bricks, it literally means they stomped themselves white, pure. They got acceptance through purity. They got their, their, their rewards through their slave actions. So that's why they couldn't have relationship with God. They were still trying to please Pharaoh, and they viewed God like a Pharaoh. And God's not like a Pharaoh. He doesn't want to master over us. He doesn't want to rule us. 
He wants intimacy. He wants a family. And Jesus wants a bride. But if you look at the church today as a whole, I'm not saying everyone, but as a whole, and you go into different churches and you listen, you'll hear things like you need to read your Bible more. You need to pray more. You need to practice His presence. You need to spend time with God. If you'll do all these things, then God will blank. You need to give. You need to give with a cheerful heart. You need to give your tithe. You need to do all these things. That's not how God is. I don't want my children to do stuff so I will bless them. No, I want my children blessed. And if uh, the things that they do are not good for them, I just don't want them to do those things. But I want them free. I don't want to be their policeman, nor do I want to be their master. I want relationship. And I want them, when they come to me for advice, I don't want them to say, well, I wonder if this is the right or wrong thing to do. I want them to know that I love them. And out of love, I give my advice. Out of love, I'll give them wisdom. Or out of love, I'll ask them questions so they can find wisdom. And they can unveil and see for themselves what blesses them and what doesn't. But now I've learned in addition to not only how relationship works, but I've learned that whatever my core beliefs are about myself, those are what needs to change. And so the children in the wilderness, when when they didn't comprehend that God wanted relationship, notice that God fed them every morning manna. And he gave them way too much on purpose. And he said, now, if you hold on to what I gave you today to sustain you for tomorrow, it'll be filled with worms. It won't bless you. Yet we, X number of years later, thousands of years later, we'll hang on to yesterday's manna, yesterday's word from God. And we will try to make that bless us today. I learned that yesterday, so God said that yesterday, so I'm going to do that today, and I'm going to be blessed because I obeyed God. God's not looking for that. He wants relationship every day. He wants your dew to be fresh every day as the dew is on the grass. He wants, re- he wants to give you manna every morning. And morning means every time you're broken, every time you're sad. He's going to feed you in your sorrows. Why? So it'll nourish you and and make you well and you can break the fast what is the breaking of the fast when you couldn't eat what you what life was giving you because you didn't think God loved you or you thought this is from the devil this is not from God no all things are from God I the Lord God I form light and I I create darkness and I the Lord God make good and evil I do all these things and so when I began to eat all of my life from God everything's from God And even if it doesn't appear good right now, no weapon formed against me will prosper. And and God will take everything meant for evil against me and make it good. And God's not bound by time. So whether I can see it yet or not, it's already good. Why? Because God is the Alpha and the Tav. So the beginning and the end already exist. The end already exists. The end results in my life already exist. I just haven't stepped into them yet. So when I began to see that, and that I'm already blessed, blessings began to flow beyond measure. What I began to draw to myself changed as my ideas of how God loved me changed, not just in my frontal lobe, 
not just in my data bank. It had to change in my emotions. Why? Because in my emotions is where the chain link protein in my amygdala is formed. And if I believe it with my brain frontal lobe data part, that's like eating processed food. There's no nutrients, it won't last. I have to have it in my amygdala. Why? Because that's the part that's attached to my heart. And the Bible says all of the issues flow out of your heart. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added. So as I go into the kingdom and the kingdom's inside of me, I began to seek, why do I believe this? Why do I feel that? Why do I feel rejected? Why do I feel abandoned? Why do I feel alone? When I began going into those feelings, I began to get revelation. Why? Because I went into the dark things. I went into the things that I couldn't understand. To have something dark means you can't see, means you can't understand. It doesn't mean the devil. So I go into these dark places. What does God feed the children in the wilderness in the evening? Meat. Long ago you should have been off of the, meat, the uh, milk and been on the meat. So, and how do you get meat? By having your senses exercised. What senses? Your feelings, your skin, your emotion. So as I begin to go into my heart and I begin to look and, and ask God, Father, show me why I feel rejected. Show me why I feel alone. Show me why I keep drawing these same situations in my life that are just cycling over and over. And I, it keeps bringing the same old results. Why do I go around this mountain and I can't get in the promised land? Why is that? Because I had a slave mentality. And the slave mentality had to be killed inside of me. It had to die. And the law helped me with that. The law came to show that I couldn't do it. And I tried and I tried and I tried. I did everything. I, I went to this class and that class and this ministry and that ministry and deliverance ministry and counseling and all the things that I was told to do. I did them all and nothing worked. So after I exhausted all measure, I turned back to God and I went inside and I began to see myself as I am. And righteousness, judgment, and sin begin to be revealed. See, man doesn't reveal righteousness, judgment, and sin. The Holy Ghost does. The Holy Ghost came to reveal. That means unveil righteousness, judgment, and sin. That means it was already there and it was veiled and I couldn't see it. And so Holy Ghost unveils it so I can see it. And once I see truth... Truth does for me what all those laws and rules and regulations and do-goods and systems and all the things I had been taught that didn't work. Truth did for me what none of that could do. Truth set me free. So when I work with people now and they'll say, Angel, what do I do? I said, have you done enough? If you hadn't done enough, don't come here. Just get up and leave. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, if you don't think you've done everything and nothing works, then I can't help you. You have to be at a place where you know you're in need of a physician, that something's wrong and you cannot fix it. You have to be at a place where you know that your best is as filthy rags and it won't work. And you, and you now shift and say, well, I must rely on Jesus Christ in me, the hope of glory. What is the hope of glory? Understanding. The hope of understanding this mess I'm in. The hope of seeing why this won't work. See, glory means to glow or shine a light on. So the hope of glory, Christ in me, the hope of glory, 
That's what delivers you from the body of death that you've been walking in. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Uh, you know, that which I don't want to do, I do. And what I want to do, I can't do. Who will deliver me from that? The answer's right there. Christ in me, the hope of glory. But I, glory means understanding. And God says clearly in his word, trust me with all of your heart. In the heart, it's attached to the amygdala. That means all your memories where your emotions are locked and you feel rejected, you feel abandoned, you feel alone, you feel misunderstood, you feel um, like the rug's going to be pulled out from under you, you feel like I get so close and then nothing happens or I, I, I can taste it and I can see it and then something robs me. When, when you can see that and you go into those emotions and, and you ask the Holy Spirit because you're seeking the kingdom now. You're seeking, why is this in me? Why are these things in me? Why are these thoughts in me? Why are these feelings in me? Rather than just rebuking the feeling. We rebuke the feeling like it's a creeping thing. We rebuke the feeling like it's the devil. We rebuke the feeling like it's your flesh. It's not flesh. It's not flesh at all. It's actually spirit. Your emotions are something you can't see. They're the invisible. God said, don't look at what you can see. Look at what you cannot see. Because what you can see is temporary. And what you cannot see is eternal. Well, I can't scoop out pain and look at it. Therefore, it's, in, it's invisible. Therefore, it's e eternal. So as I seek those eternal things inside of me, the Bible says, he who seeks the heart knows what the mind of the Holy Spirit is. So by seeking those things in me, I get the mind of the Holy Ghost. What does the Holy Ghost do? Teach me all things. What else does it teach me? It reveals righteousness, judgment, and sin. When it reveals it, guess what I have? Truth. And truth changes my brain, my amygdala, the part that's connected to my emotions and my heart. Then my emotions begin to line up with the truth that I am loved. I'm not rejected. I'm not abandoned. And all things are good, even if I don't see the fullness of the goodness of it yet. Because, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? How can I say that? Because I can see now. Even the darkness has become light unto me. Why? Because I can see with my Father's eyes. I can see with the mind of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because I went inside and I sought the kingdom of God that's already in me where I'm already seated in heavenly places. I'm not seated in heaven out there somewhere. I'm seated in the kingdom of heaven which is inside of me, which is what Jesus said. In Ephesians, I'm not Ephesians, Ecclesiastes, it says eternity is in the heart of a man. That's where eternity is. That's where the kingdom of God is. It's in you. So when you seek that, and you seek in the heart, you get the mind of the Holy Spirit. That's the same as trust me with all of your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In other words, lean means to bend or to bow. So when I lean unto my own understanding, I'm actually bowing down to self. To bow down to self means to self-worship, to self-acknowledge, to be self-sufficient. It means I have risen above God and I don't need God to reveal this to me because I already have experienced this feeling before and I recognize it from my yesterday so I will live my today and my future out of my learned experiences. That's rising up above God. 
that is the knowledge of good and evil. That's what deceived Eve. And if you look at that scripture where it says serpent and you go look that up in the Hebrew, it means learned experiences. It means she gave breath or the letter H to her sight and the letter H-I-S-S is hiss. That word is serpent. So when you give breath or you give power to your own interpretation of your current or your future through looking at your past experiences, that is self-worship. And God says, don't lean unto that. Don't lean unto your own understanding. Acknowledge me in all your ways. What ways? We just got finished talking about the ways. What was the topic? Your heart. Trust me with all your heart. So he's saying, trust me with all of the ways in your heart and acknowledge me in all those things in your heart. Find me in that feeling of rejection. How can I find God in the feeling of rejection? Well, when you were little and somebody abandoned you, maybe mom or dad or grandma, grandpa, whatever, you believe that God abandoned you. And that's the truth that you believed a lie. And that feeling will unveil that you believed a lie. Well, if you just push the feeling away, you stay in your, in your delusion. Because you love not the truth, I gave you over to a strong delusion. And that means you're not sober-minded. That means you're double-minded. And that's why you don't get your prayers answered because you ask and you ask amiss and you're unstable in all your ways and you're not going to get anything you ask for. That makes sense. makes sense biblically. It makes sense scientifically. And it makes sense physiologically in your body, the way your body's created, the way it works. It all makes perfect sense. And it's unveiled in Scripture. I saw it in Scripture before I saw it in science. And I went looking. I said, God, show me how to prove this. Show me how. So not only did he show me in science, he showed me in frequency and in electricity. He showed me in chemistry. He showed me in the body and the way the body's actually fashioned and formed. It's visible there. But it's also visible quantumly. When I went into that part of my body and inside into my emotions and dealt with those feelings and I didn't run from them or rebuke them anymore, my amygdala or my subconscious shifted. And all of a sudden I could see clearly how much God loved me and my emotions lined up. My emotions were love and gratitude. When I felt love and gratitude, my body tangibly manifested the presence of God so strong I couldn't sit up I couldn't open my eyes I could not stand they had some people pushed me up and held me because the kabod of God was so heavy that I couldn't my body was numb with 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 um, frequency the frequency that came out of my body the energy remember the virtue left Jesus when the woman touched him the virtue was so flowing it was like a river Five people saw uh, lightning come out of my body, and some people saw water flow out of my body. Well, the way to explain it felt like an explosion, so that probably was the lightning thing they saw. But once it exploded, it felt like rivers flowing out of my hands, out of my feet, out of my belly, out of my back, and out of the top of my head. And the best I could describe it, and I actually went home and tested this to make sure I was not exaggerating. God doesn't need embellishing anyway, but... You know, me and my goody-two-shoes self didn't want to lie. So I went home and I got in my, in my bathtub and I turned the jets on and I put my hands next to the jets and that's exactly what it felt like coming out of my body. So I did this for quite a few days because the, the, the residue, if you will, of this frequency 
lasted. And actually, as I talk, when I'm talking about it right now, because my cells have memory, I can feel the tingling in my hands and my feet actually right this moment, actually down my leg as I'm talking about it. It'll manifest in my body, not to the same degree, but it does come up. So as it passed out of my body and the residue had dissipated and my hands didn't, I mean, I could walk now and drive and all that. I would put my hands on those jets and sometimes I still do just for the memory of it. And that's what it felt like coming out of my body. So gratitude uh, is the, the, the result of feeling loved. And when I felt this love explode in my body, I was keenly aware that I was never alone I'm not rejected, I'm not abandoned, and even if everybody else in the whole world treated me that way, it don't matter anymore. It really doesn't matter. I'm not, it's not that I'm indifferent to people. I do love people, and I, and I, 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 I know I'm connected to them even if they're not aware of it. I already know that I am love, and they are love, and we are connected whether or not they could see it because I've seen it, I've felt it, I experienced it in my amygdala and then it manifested in my entire body when I saw the love of God the way that I saw it. And so the children in the wilderness couldn't see that God loved them because they still had in their memory, literally in their amygdala memory, in their limbic brain memory, that they got cared for by doing works. And so that's how they lived their life. That's why they stayed in the wilderness for 40 years. And it wasn't until after their, one of the last things they had to overcome was complaining. And when they complained, the snakes began to bite them and they were gonna die. And Moses cries out again and God tells Moses, put a, stick, put a, uh, a serpent on a stick and have the people look up at the stick. And all those who will look at the serpent, those people will be healed. And what they were looking at was themselves. When they looked at and they saw that they were their own ones biting themselves. They were the ones spewing the venom. And they looked at the serpent. What did they look at? The same thing, the knowledge of good and evil. So you complain when you don't see justice. You complain when you think someone did something bad. And then you blame and you cover and you run. So same thing Adam and Eve did. Adam and Eve ate outside of themselves. They ate from knowledge. They ate from knowledge of good and evil. Once they ate that, Eve saw that it was good. Adam saw that they were naked. They made fig leaves and covered themselves. They ran. They hid. And then when, they, when God said, who told you you were naked? Who told you you were lacking? Who told you you were in absence of a covering? When that happened, they started blaming. Once they blamed, God then explained to them the curse on the snake and the curse on the dirt, and then the results of what Adam and Eve would do. Eve, you're gonna desire your husband, he's gonna rule over you, and in, in travail, you're gonna give birth. Um, Adam, you're gonna work with the work of your hands, you're gonna do everything right, you're gonna to try to do all this, you're gonna, and you're gonna get thorns and thistles. And Eve, uh, the, the devil has bruised your heel, but you're gonna crush his head. And so basically what a bruised heel means, the word heel, H-E-E-L, means sorrow and suffering. If you look it up in the Hebrew, it means to suffer. So she was bruised by suffering. What is, it, what is a bruise? Blood that comes to the surface but never exits the skin. So blood and emotion are the same thing. So our emotions rise up 
and we push them down. We don't let them exit. We don't let them bleed out. We get pain. We don't bleed out our pain. We shove it down. We shove it down with food. We shove it down with exercise. We shove it down with religion. We shove it down with prayer. We shove it down with alcohol, with sex. Uh, we shove it down with all sorts of things. That's a bruise. A bruise is when you shove the emotion and you callous it over. You, you keep it within the skin. It doesn't exit the skin. So that's how the enemy has trapped us. Is we've been deceived by our sorrow and suffering and holding it in. But the Bible says she's going to crush him with the very heel that he bruised. And she's going to crush the head. And so what happens when we work with people, we go back into their bruises. We go back into their sorrow and suffering where they were bruised, where the, where the blood got trapped under the surface. And we bleed that out. And when, when, that, when that's released and new information comes, the head is actually transformed, the amygdala. And the old way of thinking is crushed. And I no longer believe I'm rejected. I know I'm loved. And I overcome the serpent. I overcome my past experiences. And they don't hold me bound anymore. I thought I was rejected. I never was. I thought I was alone. Never was. It's not possible. God's omnipotent. I can't be alone. Being alone is not possible. Because God's everywhere at all times. And He's in me. So when I saw that, my whole life changed. I went from having no one to minister to and nowhere to speak, which is what my call was. God called me to go and speak and, and teach. And I, I couldn't find... I, I preached to the wind. I got on my golf cart and would drive around and preach because I couldn't find a pulpit to preach in. Well, I blamed men for a long time. And God said, what are you waiting on? Why are you waiting for man to give you a place to preach? I called you to preach. I said, well, God, there's, you know, unless you send a preacher, unless there's somebody to listen to it, what good is a preacher? He said, you see that dandelion out there? If my wind can take a dandelion, which is temporary, and bring it anywhere I want it to go, how much more can my wind bring my word, which is eternal? Preach, Angela. And I went outside and I stepped out on my porch. I began to preach. I would get on my golf cart and I'd drive around and I'd preach. And I'd tell the wind, carry this word. And it did. So see, I didn't have to wait for permission. I thought I did. But when you're a child, you think you need permission. When you grow up and you become a bride. And now you have your household of your father. And he's given you your own land. And he's given you your inheritance. Why? You had it all along. You just wasn't mature enough to walk in it. But when God gave me my inheritance, what is my inheritance? My identity. I am the bride. I am Miserous Jesus Christ. That's who I am. Once I knew who, that, who I was, Christ is my covering. Christ is my head. And I don't need man's permission to obey Christ. I don't need that. And if it's not of God, it will fall to the ground. Isn't that what the, what was what, uh, said in the Bible? Yeah, look, if I'm not of God, then don't worry about it. Watch, it'll fall. But if I'm of God, it won't fall. And I tell people when I go places, the earth's going to have to testify what I'm telling you is true. If it don't testify, then don't believe me. I'm a liar. But if what I tell you is true, you watch. The earth will testify. You were there with me in Watson, Louisiana. And I was preaching on the ilium which is the hip bones. There's two, two ileums in the body. And I was preaching on the number two and the word twin and how Adam and Eve is a twin. I was teaching what that meant. I taught um, 
on 22:22 with three people sent us a text telling us to look up Isaiah 22:22. Um, it was on Highway 10:22 on January 22nd, and I'm preaching all this stuff. Two people have their ilium healed in that meeting. You remember that? And after the meeting was over, um, oh, and another lady brought some music, and it was two hours and 22 minutes long. And we had signs and wonders and miracles that happened. And I said to you guys at brunch, I said, somebody look in the news. There will have to be something to testify of what I taught you or you can don't believe anything I said. Because I was unveiling new mysteries, right? I wasn't teaching you something you already knew. I was teaching you what the Holy Ghost had showed me about the numbers and, and about unity and all that. And you pulled up your cell phone. It just so happens you have twin boys. Now, I wasn't thinking about that at the time. I just was thinking earth has to declare, has to proclaim what heaven declared, if it was heaven. And so you said, well, any earthquake? And I said, no, nah, it needs to be a big one, like 6.0 or something, because we have earthquakes every day. So you pulled up your phone, and there, you said, oh, there was, in Alaska. I said, what's the name of the city? And you said, Ilionum. I said, oh, really? Ilionum? I just got finished teaching on Ilionum, which is the number two, which is twin, and the two becoming one and unity and all that. And I said, tell me more. Well, it was a twin earthquake. A 6.8 and a 7.2. That's big earthquakes. And your son, who was a twin, lived in Ilium, Ilium, Alaska. Uh, and well, the, if you look up, it was in, but the, the actual city where the earthquake occurred is Ilium. Remember that? We can go look it up and we can look up that date and I can show it to you. So the earth declared that what I taught on the twin and on the number 2, 2, or 11, 11, all this, all this bit about 11, 11 is really the number 22 or the fullness of 2. What is the fullness of 2? A child. A child is the fullness of 2. Man, woman, child. Father, son, Holy Ghost. Or Father, Holy Ghost, son. That's what it's about. And so when we wake up, and we know who we are. And we know our identity. You don't walk in a wilderness mentality. You don't walk in a slave mentality. You don't even walk in, I need to obey God. Why? Because you can't not obey God. It's not an issue anymore. What happens is you hear his voice. And you can't wait for his voice to get here. You, you're, you're looking for it in everywhere in all things at all times. And so you can't not hear him. So you walk in what you hear. It's not that you're trying to obey. It's his voice is so sweet. Why would you even want to disobey? Obedience, it's beyond obedience. It, 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 it goes from an obedient child into an, a passionate love relationship with Jesus where you are his bride and you do what, what he says, not because you want to obey him, but because you can't resist him. His love is so blown your mind that to not hear to adhere to his voice is not even a it's not even a, a thought of yours it's not a temptation anymore it's not oh should I obey him it's oh he spoke how could I not beckon or how could I not um, follow his voice it's like my husband if I'm in the kitchen cooking and I'm preparing dinner or whatever and my honey calls out, Hey, Angela, or baby, come here. I don't go, Oh, my God, I can't believe he wants. What does he want? No, that's not what happens. My heart pitter-patters. And I, I can't wait to see what he's calling me for. Well, what is he calling me for? 
he might want a glass of water and he's sweating outside mowing grass or he might just want to see my face and kiss me I don't know what he wants but it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if he if he needs me to do something or if he just wants sometimes he'll say come in here baby I just want you to sit with me come sit down come sit with me I'll help you with that and baby I'm cooking so that's okay I'll help you I just miss you come sit with me do you know Jesus is the same way sometimes he calls our name and he wants something of us he he wants us to love this one who's broken or go here or go there or whatever but sometimes he just wants you to sit with him and have a cup of coffee he just wants to sit on the back porch and love on you and that's the kind of mentality that happens when you're no longer a child and you no longer have a slave pattern of thinking but you have the lover of your soul who's melted your heart he takes your breath away and he is your breath and he he's blown your mind why because it didn't work and now you need his and he is your mind he is your thoughts and you lean unto that because you realize what you leaned unto was slavery and you it don't taste good and you don't like slavery and since it don't taste good it's not even a temptation to go back to it if that which Moses walked in was so glorious and they had to cover his face and it was passing away if that was glory and the Bible says when you see the new glory in Christ the new promise against that there is no law it's going to look like the glory that you walked in before of do this and don't do that touch this and don't touch that it's going to look like darkness in other words it's not going to be appealing it's, it's not going to tempt you you're not going to go can you imagine does, being a slave does that tempt you are you tempted to go find a master see it's the same way so when we see that that means you've seen the love of God and the whom the sun sets free is absolutely free indeed